One of the things that I like to say to people is if you everything you hear in the mainstream, if you are low income, do the opposite <laughs> and you are probably, probably going to be better off. You yeah. are probably going to be better off because you're in that parallel situation. So... Welcome to the Mostly Money Podcast with your host, Preet Banerjee. This is Mostly Money, and I'm your host, Preet Banerjee. And on the show today, we're going to be talking about the upside down world of financial planning for low income Canadians. And before I get to introducing today's guest, I would like to make a shameless plug for something. selfishly, uh, which is something I actually don't do enough on this podcast. I really should do that more often. Uh, Some of you may know that I went back to school and I'm in year five of hopefully what's a five-year program, could be six. And my research is looking at the value of financial advice in Canada. And I have a survey that I have deployed and it would be really great if anyone listening could take a few minutes out of their day. It's about 10 minutes to fill out the survey. And that would help my research tremendously. So I set up a special domain so you can find it easily. It's advicesurvey.ca. So remember, I'm studying the value of financial advice. So it's advicesurvey.ca. Go to that website, click on the link. It's uh, 66 questions, but it actually goes by pretty quickly. And people actually, I think, enjoy taking the survey. Um, At least a few people have told me. I'm sure 10 minutes filling out a survey is not everyone's cup of tea, but if you could advicesurvey.ca would be much appreciated. And now on to today's guest. I've got with me in studio John Stapleton, uh, who is a writer, instructor, and innovation fellow with the Metcalf Foundation. He worked for the Ontario government for about 28 years in the areas of social assistance, policy, and operations, and was research director for the Task Force on Modernizing Income Security for Working Age Adults in Toronto. John teaches on public policy for community advocates and is extensively published in local and national media. And he is often requested uh, by everyone to talk about this area of expertise, which is retirement planning for lower income Canadians. So, John, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Let's start with talking about this this idea. So we'll get into this idea about how there's this alternate reality for uh, financial planning for lower income Canadians, but how did you first come across this topic? Well, I first came across it. Um, basically, I spent um, my government career uh, in in low income policy, social assistance policy, and in fact, um, I always taught myself to um, if I ever was offered a package to take it. And so at the age of 52, 16 years ago, I um, was uh, in an opportunity to take an unreduced pension. And so I took it and uh, I was much too young to retire. So I went, I started a little company called Open Policy mm-hmm. and, uh, and then hung out my shingle, so to speak. And I started to uh, do work for various different, and as it turned out, I thought I was going to be doing good, uh, business with government, mm-hmm. which you can do as a retired uh, public servant, but 
um, mainly you deal with uh, government vendors of record, and those vendors of record then only want to do business with people with other businesses and get invoices with HST numbers on them and that sort of thing. So I ended up doing some work for government in the early years, like in the early two thousands. But then mostly from then on, it's been through agencies, nonprofits. And uh, and one-offs for um, government itself and their and their various different agencies, and that got me into the whole area of writing. And um, and then eight years into that, I turned sixty. Right. And when you turn sixty, you realize that you know there's decisions. Do you take early CPP? Mm-hmm. Um, what happens with your? Um, uh, it's one of those years when things start to happen in that retirement universe. Right. And yeah. And we're going to we're going to talk yeah. more about that because that is when things really start to change right. uh, and decisions have to be made. And sometimes people default into bad decisions. Absolutely. Or they follow advice that might work for some Canadians and maybe most Canadians, but works horribly for them. So um, before we talk about one thing I want to ask you about is, um, so you're an innovation fellow with the Metcalf Foundation. So what's right. the Metcalf Foundation? The Metcalf uh, Foundation is a private family foundation and uh, 2IC to um, Garfield Weston way back in the day was his fellow by the name of um, George Cedric Metcalf, and he made a lot of money along with uh, the Westons, and um, uh, they created a um, family foundation. So they don't accept donations, but they do. Uh, uh, they're a foundation that looks into the arts and the environment and the social issues and that sort of thing. And um, it has a fellowship program uh, that allows them to uh, basically um, fund uh, a number of fellows who then go out and support uh, hopefully do good deeds uh, in the area of social policy, the environment, arts, etc. And you're one of these good fellows. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. <laughs> the work that you do really... I, I really can't underscore it enough. It's such important work, um, and you've been banging the drum for a long time. I know you were the first person to really put it on my radar about this yeah. issue. And ever since then... And I remember when I first heard about it, I was like, this... What is what is all this? And then you had sent me a lot of documents, and it was all well researched, uh, a lot of references. And I looked into, it and I was like, "Yeah, oh my god, this is there's there's this whole different world that exists there." And you know, years ago when I was an advisor myself, I didn't deal with people unless they had a lot of money. That's the business. That was the nature of the business. Um, it's starting to change a little bit. There are more financial advisors out there now who don't necessarily go after people with lots of money. Um, and there's different compensation models and what have you. But for the most part, the same problem exists, and that is a lot of people are simply untrained when it comes to dealing with people who are on the lower end of the income and wealth spectrum. So in a nutshell, do you want to explain what is this upside down or alternate reality that that exists for lower income Canadians? Okay, so let's start with um, the world that exists for 68% of Canadians. Yeah. So we're basically talking one-third, two-thirds. So for two-thirds of Canadians, they generally have a working lifetime where they will be making more taxable income. And then when they move into retirement, they will have uh, fewer dollars in, in taxable income. And... In many cases, for those, uh, for that one third of Canadians who will retire and be able to receive a program called the Guaranteed Income Supplement, which is one of the larger uh, pieces of our retirement income system, um, 
for those people, they live in that parallel universe because instead of retiring with less taxable income, they retire with more taxable income. Right. So, for example, someone who uh, re- receives uh, social assistance during their during their working working years, um, someone who is uh, on a disability program, it could be a birth onset disability, it could be something later on, but basically they don't have that much money, they haven't saved that much money, they haven't put money into um, into savings, that sort of thing, and would retire without a, um, generally speaking, a, uh, a, a pension. So they're in the position where once they turn 65, their income is higher because uh, social assistance of various um, sources, from various different sources, as well as awards of various sources, tend not to be taxable. Then you turn 65 and old age security is taxable. CPP is taxable. RSP cash outs are taxable. Your pension is taxable. If you earn money, and some people do, more and more Canadians are earning money post 65, that's taxable too. So all of a sudden they're in this world where they're collecting taxable income from various different sources, whereas in pre-retirement they did not. And so as a result, they are not in a, the mainstream advice that is always trying to say, uh, uh, to to make in, uh, investments in RSPs, for example, um, people turn um, sixty five. They're supposed to be in a position of when they st- take that money out of their RSP, or if they wait till post seventy one when it turns into a RIF, that they will be taking it out and be taxed on it less than the uh, than the uh, deductions that they were able to receive in pre retirement. Whereas for low income people, the the exact opposite is true. Yeah. So let's actually start there and let's let's um give people sort of like a a a base case to consider so for those of you listening who may not be 100 percent familiar with how an rrsp works it's a giant income deferral tool so let's say that you had someone who was earning a hundred thousand dollars at their job and for argument's sake and this isn't the right number but for argument's sake let's say that they pay thirty thousand dollars in income tax for the year and then we'll say there's their, I don't know, identical brother, twin brother, and they earn $90,000 per year. And their tax that they pay in income tax over the course of the year is, say, $25,000. Um, let's say that that first brother, earning 100000 decides to make a $10,000 RRSP contribution. That is technically an income deduction. You can deduct that from your income. And so what happens is when you file it, um, the CRA is going to say, oh, hey, um, this person only made 90000 because they deducted 10000 from the 100000 And we know that someone making 90000 only has to pay 25000 in tax, but they paid 30000 so they get this $5,000 refund. And that's why most people, when they make an RSP contribution, get a tax refund. It's because your earned income for the year that basically counts because of the income deduction is less. And since you paid the tax of someone making more money, you've overpaid the tax. Hence, you get the refund when it's all reconciled. So that's all fine and dandy. Let's now fast forward to when you take the money out of an RRSP. The government's going to say, hey, remember how we allowed you to deduct it from your income? Well, now we're going to add it to your income just like you earned it from a job. And it's going to be subject to income tax. And so the base case for, again, you know, two-thirds of Canadians roughly, is that you are working, you're in a higher tax bracket, you make a contribution, and that's great. It's more attractive the higher the tax bracket you're in. And then you retire, hopefully into a lower tax bracket, so that when you do take out the money, it's taxed at a lower rate. And that differential between the tax rate 
at the time of contribution when you're working and at the time of withdrawal when you're retired. The bigger that differential, generally speaking, the better off you're going to be. And this is not the case for a low-income Canadian. So let's take a look at an example where someone is making very little income. Uh, and in fact, their income is so low that it you know barely brushes the first marginal tax bracket. Right. So they might say, oh, everyone says I should save into an RSP. I guess I should do that. So they scrimp and they save. Because it's RSP season. There's right, or whatever. You're supposed to go out and do. Yeah, and so they, they scrounge up and they find money. And it's harder, right? Because yeah. every dollar counts more when you yeah. don't have a lot of it. And they say, yeah, I'm going to do something really good for myself. I'm going to plan for the future. I'm going to do something super responsible. I'm going to put this money into my retirement savings plan, my RRSP. And they get very small tax savings, uh, if any, because their marginal rate is so low. So their relative benefit is not that great. Uh, and then when they take the money out in retirement, you might be thinking, oh, all right, well, they're in a low tax bracket. Uh, and so, you know, they didn't make, save a lot of tax putting in. They're not going to pay a lot taking out. Well, you'd be wrong because the GIS is income tested. Right. And essentially every dollar of income reduces your GIS by a minimum of 50 by a cents. a minimum of 50 cents. Because it can go dollar. up to 92 cents That's right. clawed back per dollar, right? Depending on your Where exact you level income yeah. and stuff. So if that was tacked onto their, uh, you know, marginal tax rate, it's effectively... Like someone who is low income could make, uh, you know, let's say 20% or less in tax savings up front, but then be taxed somewhere between uh, 75 to over 100% effectively, right? Absolutely. So, um, in the worst case. Yeah, in the worst case. Um, so, this is an example of how saving into an RSP would be horrific advice right. for someone in that category. And it's not, you know, just a few thousand people we're talking about. We're talking about a significant number of people where this is something that they really need to think twice about before making not a only savings, but right now we know from uh, Stats Canada that uh, in fact many many people who are very low income and what I like to call GIS bound. In other words, unless something major changes in their life, right. like a winning a lottery or whatever, um, then they are going to be on GIS, but they are holding, currently holding RSPs that they should really, if they were planning properly, they'd be cashing them in. So the the quick and dirty answer for a lot of people who are wondering, all right, what do I do? I need to sit down and figure this stuff out because it is somewhat complex. Your default option should be the tax-free savings account if you want to save for the future. Is that a fair assessment? Right, because the TFSA, there's no clawbacks on it. Yeah, and that's because when you uh, make a contribution in. in, it's not an income deduction, right? So right. people often say you're putting in after-tax money. But the flip side is that when you take it out, it's not treated like income either and therefore would not affect the income-tested benefits. And it also grows tax-free just like the RRSP while you, while you hold it. Yeah, so it's a tax-sheltered environment uh, just like any other registered account. So, But again, the, the important part here is that when it take money out of the TFSA, it's not treated like income and hence does not reduce these income tested benefits. The big one would be the GIS, the guaranteed income supplement. Right. So, uh, okay. So that there are is, others, but that's the big one. That's the big one, right? That's a huge program. Um, so let's talk about, actually, while we're on this topic of clawback, GIS clawback. So in the world of higher income Canadians, they're more worried about OAS clawback. clawback right. Now, this is, again, a totally different world. So OAS, you qualify by uh, qualify for by turning 65 and having lived in Canada for a certain amount of time. And the longer you live there, basically, here in Canada, 
the more your benefit is going to be. And the max OAS you can get is if you lived in Canada for 40 out of the 47 47 years years. after age 18. And so right now that- $601 a month. (laughs) Right. And so you, you get that. And there's a lot of tax planning done for higher middle-class Canadians all around making sure that you minimize your OAS clawback. So let's talk about um, this whole concept of old age security for people making $75,000 a year or more in retirement. Because the OAS clawback doesn't start until about 77. Yeah, 77,000 is it now? Um, And it's clawback at the rate of 15 cents on the dollar. Until it disappears. Until it disappears, which is around around $627,000. So what that means is that if you're retired and um, you are... uh, worried about the OAS clawback. You don't start to worry about the OAS clawback until your taxable income in retirement is over $77,000. Right. The name of the program is old age security. Right. How much security, how much more security do you need if you're making $77,000 a year in retirement? Right. Um, so this I know is going to be a huge issue for government in the next coming years, decades, because currently I think OAS program spending is like 50 billion, but it's going to go up to like 250 billion in, I don't know, 10, 20 years or something like that, just because of the Well, the baby boom um, yeah. uh, reti- started retiring in 2011. So not only do you have the new people that are coming on in much greater numbers than they did before, uh, you also have the fact that the program is indexed and governments do like to put a little extra money in there every so often. And of course, they've done that um, over the years. And now uh, here we are at the point where the um, old age security um, is over 600 a month. So you're looking at 7,200 a year. And uh, people are living longer. And people are living longer. Uh, So this is a huge, huge um, spending item in terms Mm -hmm. of the the federal budget. So this will be something that people examine. And uh, I know that there are, uh, I guess, some wealthy seniors who will be very angry at me for suggesting this. But I think the OAS clawback, if anything, should, you know, fully phase out by $75,000 in income or, or something like that. It's a huge debate. I know. the people in that, in that area. Yeah. And, and just the, uh, I guess the Harper government decided uh, one way to do it was to raise the age. But of course, Mr. Trudeau came in and reduced it back to six, 65. So all of those issues, what, what can we do to make sure right, right now our whole income security system in, in Canada spends about $190 billion and that's about getting, nudging up to 9% of GDP. So. Right. Puts us somewhere in the middle, the mushy middle of uh, countries of of the rich countries of the world, but we spend over fifty percent. In fact, fifty two percent of all that one hundred and ninety billion goes into old age security and CPP programs for seniors. So, in some ways, the benefits for seniors are crowding out the uh, the benefits that we try to pay to children and working age adults. Yeah, and there's the whole group generation squeeze that yeah. um, you know uh, a large part of the platform is. Hey, we're not saying starve seniors. We're just saying, think about how much money goes into providing security for seniors and then think about how much goes to the other generations whatnot. But I don't want to get into that just now. Um, Let's go back to this upside down world of retirement planning uh, for lower income Canadians. So we talked about GIS. uh, We talked about uh, OAS. Um, What other programs do we want to talk about uh, first? Do you want to talk about um, 
using Ontario as an example, although this would exist across Canada, Canada. um, ODSP and Ontario Works. So ODSP, Disability, and Ontario Works uh, Social Assistance. These are basically what are called social assistance programs. They're the... They're the last payer for people that don't have any other forms of income. And usually they deduct other forms of income and in some ways are destitution-based programs. But right. um, uh, in Ontario, for example, 6.7% of our population receives, men, women, and children receive Ontario Works or ODSP as their main source of income. Sorry, what was that percentage? It's 6.7%. 6.7%, yeah. right. So not insignificant. Not and insignificant they are, at all. Like you said, it's it's destitution at this point because when you look at um, what Ontario Works max payout is what seven thirty three a month. Yeah, seven thirty three a month. Um, and if and, rent seven hundred, well, right. you're going to a food bank. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or you can have a lot of roommates, um, and that's just sort of the reality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also um, income testing uh, as well. So, for example, with Ontario Works, I think the current form is you're allowed to earn $200 a month. It's going up to 300 Right, so I want to talk now. about that. So it's currently 200 and the proposal is to go increase the exemption up to 300 So you can make up to 200 without um, uh, being affected by the clawback, but then the clawback yeah. is 50 cents on the dollar. But the new proposed change would be increasing that to $300 a month, but then the phase-out is $0.75 cents on the dollar. So it actually phases out faster, even though the threshold is a little bit higher. Yeah, let me give you a concrete example here. I know a person um, on on one of these programs who actually um, uh, takes pizza orders. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people who do that, especially on income assistance. And uh, so what they would be able to do if they are making minimum wage, they'll be collecting $14 an hour, uh, and they'll keep that free and clear up to the first $200. And then afterwards... They are, in effect, making $7 an hour right. until they make enough to go entirely off assistance, which I guess is the idea. Um, but what will happen now is that person will be able to keep the first $300 of earnings that they make uh, at that job. But um, after that, instead of making $14 an hour, in effect, they're making $3.50 an hour. Right. So it's kind of a disincentive, right? I mean, because people are much more sensitive to losing things, right? There's that yeah. loss aversion. And so you need to take away sort of the three quarters of the income of working those extra hours. That can be a powerful, powerful demotivator to do that. Right. right? In other words, you'll work up to the um, to the the point where the income is disregarded, and then stop, and, right? And then, and then stop. And I, I advise the same thing for seniors on the the guaranteed income supplement because they can earn up to thirty five hundred dollars a year, and then the clawback is uh, fifty or more. Right. So they, in a, in a way, you have to make a decision. Am I just going to work up to family day? Yeah. And then after that, not work at all because it's uh, the, the clawbacks are just so onerous. Or do I make the decision, look, I'm still in the workforce and I'm going to make, what, two-thirds of the minimum wage and then I'll be off the program completely and then right. I won't worry about these things anymore. Yeah. And, and of course, you'd want to encourage people to break free of that poverty cycle and work as much as you can. That's called making the leap in common parlance. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, very apt. Um, okay, so that's uh, Ontario Works. And it's it's very similar with ODSP. The limits yeah. are a little bit different. Um, I think the proposed change is make, going up to $500 per Yeah, month. it's 6000 a year. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then they would also face the same clawback of 75, 75% cents on the dollar. Yeah. Um, okay, so... 
let's say that someone is on the very low end of the income spectrum uh, their entire career. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that once they hit 65, their actual income goes up? Absolutely. In many cases, they've just won the lottery because uh, a, a senior who has no other income at all, and I do meet into them, of people who have no CPP, they have no pension, they have no other uh, money in the bank sort of thing that's earning them any income. And the poorest senior in Ontario, for example, will uh, have a yearly income of $20,500 a year. As long as they p- file a tax return and get the refundable credits, they'll get old age security, they'll get the guaranteed income supplement, a tiny little program called GAINS. Uh, yeah. But it all goes together to create an income of about 20500 If you think of somebody on Ontario Works, they're, they're basically getting about 9000 a year. Right. So, and there's others that like on ODSP that maybe it's about $14,000 a year. So when you turn 65, it's kind of like winning the lottery. And I've certainly seen the, uh, especially what I call embedded caregivers who are uh, turning 65 and they're basically in their family helping out with the kids, helping out with the seniors. And for the first time in their life, they're actually going to have an income. So this is, um, so for some, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's quite good news. Right. Um, now, um, with these social assistance programs or disability support programs, there are asset limits, right? Right. Um, and let's see. I think the recent change basically says that you know if you have certain non-exempt assets, if they are above a certain amount, then you are no longer qualified for That's the right. same You're level of assistance. Disqualified completely. And these asset limits are. Pretty low. Um, they, I know they've been expanded tremendously yeah. recently. Um, with Ontario Works, it was like quadrupled from twenty five hundred to ten thousand. Yeah, and then ODSP was from five thousand to forty thousand. I think right. it was. Um, so that's good news because that also, you know, if you wanted to save into uh, even a TFSA or whatever, once you hit a certain threshold, then they'd say, "All right, well, now you're not qualified anymore." Right. Right. Uh, okay. So again, very intricate details for programs like this. And I think it would be safe to say that access to computers, access to information, literacy levels are are lower with lower income. And so if that's the case, how do we ensure that people who would be entitled for programs and need to know about the specialized planning, how do they get this information? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You hear a lot about supply chains these days, because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood, and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Well, uh, for me, I I spend a lot of time in church basements. I'm in uh, uh, the... uh, deal with the Toronto Public Library and with other, uh, through the Council of Aging in Ottawa with the library system there. And so it's really, uh, it's, it's really the issue of getting out and doing it in person. 
And in most cases, um, the libraries are getting better. Uh, if you go into a library now, you see these long banks of computers and people are actually able to take their own USB keys in and, and save information that they receive online. And so somebody who is computer literate are certainly the children of people who mm-hmm. are on social assistance are more likely to be. It is getting slightly better. Um, Service Canada, um, who, basically the butt of many of my jokes over the years but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I have to admit they're getting much better than they they were you can you you can you can actually get information get people to help you and that sort of thing but it's a huge barrier if you're not able to have a uh, uh, a smartphone and a data plan um, the the digital divide is is really quite daunting and uh, and and especially if you don't learn the skills to learn how those things work because mm-hmm. as we grow with them we learn how apps work and that sort of thing and uh, but I've seen a lot of people who are just completely bereft you know here but you hand them this complex piece of machinery really and and uh, and and it takes them some time to uh, to vaunt that curve yeah no doubt um, let's talk about um, people who are using you know uh, financial institutions if they don't have a lot of money they're not seeing the people in the separate you know ivory towers that deal with million dollar plus portfolios right. and are used to sophisticated yeah. planning and modeling and whatnot um, and if they don't have a lot of saving at all, savings at all, they're probably not even seeing sort of like the in-branch planner or anything like that. Yeah. And so they might be in the position where they come in, they have low income, and they say, listen, I've, I'm going to scrap together 100 bucks a month I want to put into an RSP. In many cases, uh, an RSP will be opened and money will go in there, even though yeah. that might be bad. So how do we get more financial institutions to recognize this issue? Because again, this can affect maybe a third of Canadians. Right. Well, the uh, the banks, I think at this time really are, I think it's safe to say that they're not interested in low-income consumers. Um, there are people who actually do have money, but they're low-income. Doesn't right. mean they don't have have money, and the the banks will be interested in them. I think, generally speaking, somewhere between fifty and seventy five thousand dollars. If you have that, they're going to be interested in working with you. Uh, less than that, it's really going to be hard for them to make money in an environment where they don't charge for their. Um, for their advice and people, uh, I think over time it's safe to say that they become fee resistant and, uh, mm-hmm. especially lower income people are going to be fee, fee resistant. Uh, I'm fond of saying that, um, uh, your advice is probably, uh, worth what you paid for it. And if you didn't pay anything for it, then you can make the, you can come to the correct conclusion. But, uh, at, the also the issue uh, for me is the is the screens in the bank. What what I mean by that is what's put in front of of the people who work in the bank. And for example, if someone comes in and says, "Look, I want to cash out my I'm 60 years old. Uh, I went and I saw Stapleton in the library, and I'm the and I'm going to cash out on my RSP because I know it's going to it's going to affect my GIS when I turn 65." Uh, they have screens that actually discourage them from taking out the uh, mm. the RSP. Oh no, you want to leave that in there until retirement and somebody will say well, well let me put the, the extra money I have right now into TFSA and they'll say something well TFSA is something you really use after you've um, maxed out your RSP 
It's changing. It's changing slowly. And I think um, the fact that Canadians have found the TFSA to be a very popular savings instrument, we're, we're starting to see that change. Mm-hmm. And I see some interest in the banks. Uh, but generally speaking, we have a long way to go. Yeah. And what I'm really interested in is is preventing people from putting money into an RSP if it's going to hurt them right? Um, when they take it out eventually. Because that still is allowed to happen much mm-hmm. more frequently than it should be. Um, and what I'm trying to get at here is I'm trying to get, you know, anyone who's listening to the podcast, because I have a lot of listeners who work in the financial services, you need to hire John to come and do some training <laughs> or um, education or, or writing some information sources for people in your institutions to really highlight the specialized strategies, approaches, um, system impl- implementations, etc., so that we can avoid this happening. because. The more and more we do make this known, and the more and more it continues to happen, the people who continue to recommend people do these things uh, are going to have to face some kind of liability at some point, right? I mean, this is doing damage to some people. So um, I'm trying to get people to hire you because we talked earlier about, (laughs) you know, you are out there tirelessly banging the drum on this stuff. And you've run into situations where you've got people, say, who are higher net worth, but they have someone in the family who's affected by uh, low income planning considerations. Yeah, I have three audiences. I have people who are actually low, low income people who walk in and they're heading into retirement or just about there, get too many 64 year olds that, that, that um, you have to do some quick planning with. But then I have um, folks 25 and 30 and they're in there almost in every case because of their parents. Right, and they think their parents are doing something they they don't think is quite right, and they want to get more advice. But then there's a third group of people that come in, and uh, you see a fellow or a gal looking a bit uncomfortable. You see he's in a two thousand dollars suit and saying, uh, "Why are you in here for low income retirement?" And what comes comes out is uh, in in these sessions, they'll talk. I I I got a brother in law. I got a nephew. I got a niece. Um, usually not their own sons and daughters because they figure that out, but they'll have somebody that's a bit distant from them and they think they're getting the wrong advice. They have done their homework enough and they're uh, financially fluent or literate enough to be able to work out, hey, an RSP, the program they're heading for has this clawback and uh, I'm getting advice that they should be in and they've got RSPs now and my brother, my sister, whoever is not, taking this into account so i'm i'm going to learn about this and i'm going to do that mm-hmm. it's those folks where i start to get the calls from the various uh, not so much the banks but various different um uh investing organizations you know businesses saying hey help us here we we've had somebody come in who's a high net worth individual and they're saying i want some proper advice then they find my stuff online and then i get a phone call so right and then so do they pay you for that or no no, in fact, uh, I, I think maybe a watershed moment for me was uh, last October when I did the, um, I had about 75 people in the Don Mills Library here and um, uh, 12 of the uh, folks came over from from investors group. I was very, very happy to see them. And they came over as a group and said, we're going to look at this and we're going to learn a bit about this. That's good. So there's yeah. an example, right? So um, other financial institutions, if you want to learn from John, um, consider paying the man because you've been doing all this work for a long time. Yeah. It's really valuable advice. Um, so why do you do what you're doing? 
Well, for me, uh, when I turned 60 and I started thinking about this for the first time, I'd been out, I'd been so retired in quotes for, for about eight years. And I, and I started looking at the literature, um, that was being given out to people who, um, who were entering into their early junior, senior pre-retirement years. And I just said, this, this stuff is just a lot of junk. It doesn't give you anything about the various different instruments. It doesn't t- tell you about the tax system. And it was really, I, I just used one word. It's just lame. <laughs> and, and so I said, well, this got to be fixed. And I didn't think for a moment it was going to be me. So for about, um, about a year and a half or so, I wrote to the federal government. I wrote to various agencies and said, look, you, you can't possibly get away with this kind of junk. And, uh, sorry to be so <laughs> forceful about it. Uh, and then I, it, I finally realized nobody's going to do it. So I, it's one of those things that you, you know, if you've done this sort of work and I, I, when I was in government, I wrote cabinet submissions. I did that sort of, um, high level policy work as well as implementation. I said, gee, well, I'll roll up my sleeves and do it myself. So that's what I did. Uh, and, uh, and I, then I started talking about how does the tax system work. I took people to the grocery store and say, like, coupon is like a non-refundable credit. A gift card is like a refundable credit. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to take them where they actually – something they actually knew about and then transfer that over to the tax system and say, yeah. here's how you understand the tax system and understand financial instruments. Too many times I was getting questions like, you didn't tell me whether I should be in an RRSP or a GIC. And I think, okay, an RRSP and a TFSA is like a plate and the art and the, the various financial instruments are the various ingredients that you can put on that plate. So whenever I can use food or grocery analogies, mm. I'm always able to, uh, yeah. And let's uh, talk about there, there's uh, a wealth of materials that you make available for free on your website. Yeah. So first of all, what's the website? The website is uh, openpolicyontario.com, all one word. Um, okay, so openpolicyontario.com. Right. Okay, and on there, there's a number of booklets. Um, so there's like this one master booklet. Yeah, You've so got- there's a tab called Retirement on a Low Income, and that's where you go, and it's all there. Right. Yeah. So you go to the website and then look for the tab that says retirement on a low income and you'll see uh, a number of booklets that you can download. There's a lot of case studies. There's the analogies that you talked about um, uh, comparing refundable versus non-refundable tax credits to things that you would see at a grocery store at point of sale or whatever. Um, So it's all really cool stuff. And I encourage people to download it, uh, read about it, um, share it, make sure that other people know about it, uh, tell your financial advisors about it, all that sort of stuff um, to help get the word out. Um, The last thing, and this is one case study uh, that's sort of in there, just to to, to underscore how complex planning is for lower income Canadians. So everything we've all said, Sometimes it still makes sense to actually make RSP contributions from age 65 to 71. Right. <laughs> you if you're in a that? parallel universe, yeah. <laughs> everything's going to be opposite. One of the things that I like to say to people is if you everything you hear in the mainstream, if you are low income, do the opposite <laughs> and you are probably, probably going to be better off. You yeah. are probably going to be better off because you're in that parallel situation. So that that's how it works. And, and in fact, um, uh, this is actually how I met you. Because you you had written something, I believe, for the Globe Mail at that time, saying the uh, where where you're better off being in a TFSA and better off in an RSP and that sort of thing. You talked about low income people, TFSA and that sort of thing, and RSPs are not a good idea. So I actually wrote to you and said, 
there is a situation here, and that's where uh, between 65 and 71, um, you can actually buy an RSP if you have room. Now, you go to the bottom of your notice of assessment, and at, right at the bottom it has this curious number that says your RSP room, and that is the money that you have not uh, the room that you have not used in the RSP over your working lifetime. And for low-income people, I can tell you, they're usually some pretty fancy amounts. Mm-hmm. Oh, so sure. For yeah. example, I work with a person um, uh, at Wood Green uh, Community Services that uh, worked in the Meals on Wheels program, and she had over $100,000 in unused uh, RSP. Why? Because she couldn't afford an RSP during right. her, her working lifetime. And I said, well, why don't you put money into an RSP now? Because we, we know, and this is especially for people who have enough pension income or they have enough income coming in from other places that they're not going to be on GIS. But they're just at that threshold right. of around $18,000, $19,000 where they are not eligible for, for, for GIS. And then, of course, once they get into the RIF years, they're not going to be eligible because they have enough income. Uh, so they wouldn't be eligible for GIS. But if they start to use that RSP room, let's say uh, 10, 20, well, let's say 10,000 a year for the 65 to 71, then for every dollar that they put into an RSP, they're going to get 50 cents back in GIS. So it sort of turns the GIS tap on because there is uh, deep in the, uh, in the, in the tax form, there's this line that says that you can have an RSP deduction uh, for GIS. And so that gives you GIS. So and for, this just yeah. to, to interrupt you, uh, pardon me, um, goes back to what I was saying before. When you make a contribution to an RSP, it's an income deduction. So if your income is just above the threshold to qualify for that, and you make an RSP contribution, that can bring your income below the threshold to then make you qualify for GIS, which is why it can be so powerful. For those six years, you can make those contributions, um, and then people can be creative about how they find the money to put that in. But there's a real incentive to do that, to, to find the money to use up some RSP room from 65 to 71 if you're in that so that that area. So to learn more about what that area is, go to John's website, openpolicyontario.com, look at the tab, um, retirement on a low income, and you'll find that case study and others. Um, and you'll start to understand just how complex that world is. Um, at the end of every podcast, John, everyone gets a commercial. So you can plug anything you like. We've talked about your website, so you can talk more about that. Um, but anything that you want to advertise, share with the, the listeners, the floor is yours. Well, one of the things I really hope that, that we'd be able to take this nationally, now that I have my material in, uh, in both French and English, it's, uh, we've gotten over that barrier. I have it written material actually in Gujarati. I have it in, uh, in Chinese and, uh, uh, so it's available in, in those particular ways. And, uh, also there's a number of us that have started to get interested in, in doing these, um, uh, these presentations. So I'd like to t- take it nationally if I could. Now I'm not going to be able to do it all myself, but at least be able to get, uh, get in touch with people to do that. I think the other thing is that we now have a course and um, uh, a writer for the um, Globe and Mail by the name of Alexandra McQueen has done a course that is what we would call ready for financial advisors uh, to be able to learn about this. Oh, uh, fantastic. Yeah. So uh, we're just going through the process now with uh, the Canadian Securities um, 
Institute to hopefully have that as an accredited course for a financial advisor. When people from the banks, I've had bank managers come in and look at my course and say, well, this is all well and good that you've done this library presentation, but where do I go to find out something in my terms and, and, and really learn this? And the only way I can really do that is to have a course I can go to. The problem is that most courses are about wealth management, and this is a course about that really caters to people who don't have any wealth. Right. But we're talking about families out there. And to me, that if financial institutions, if we have people who have more money in their pockets, uh, I mean, what's not to like? I mean, the, because the advice that they're getting now is putting less money in their pocket. Right. All right. I think we'll leave it there. But, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And uh, my faithful listeners, that's it for this week. I will also shamelessly plug myself again, advicesurvey.ca. If you want to help me out with my research, I would appreciate it. Pour yourself a nice cup of coffee. Take 10 minutes, fill out the survey, advicesurvey.ca. And, of course, I appreciate the continual uh, reviews and ratings on iTunes. If you want to take a second to leave a star rating on iTunes, that's fantastic. And if you want to take the time to leave a written review as well, uh, I do read them all. And that'll be it for this week. I will talk to you guys next time. 